So, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, we are entering into the final week of our series in First Peter. Uh, I'm excited for this. Uh, I was excited coming in and I'm excited coming out because I think it's been a powerful word for us, this letter. Uh, a word to the church that needs to remember their place in this world. Um, not just us, the church at large, but us as well. We need to remember we are people who are called to live with hope in a world that isn't home. We are called to be a different people who are exiles and foreign to this world, but in God's eyes, chosen and precious. So I, I don't know about you. I've, I've benefited from this time in First Peter. I hope you have as well. Um, I'm getting at least one, two nods, although one of them is from another preacher. Um, uh, so having said that, um, I'm going to start in a bit of an odd place today. Hopefully it'll become clear as we move along. Uh, it's a fairly common activity for parents to read their children's stories in fairy tales. Uh, if, if, if you've done this for your children or if you have been read a fairy tale at some point as a child, please raise your hand. Right? Everyone. Yes. Common experience. Aside from Doug. Uh, might not have been listening. Not sure. Stop zeroing people out, John. Um, yeah, often we do this before going off to sleep to, to, to bring a sense of peace and calm before the night, you know, just to, to talk about something innocent and pleasant. Um, although, although having said that, really, is it? Is what we're doing talking about something innocent and pleasant when we read fairy tales and children's stories? I want to question that fact right now, okay? Because there's two things that are true of most fairy tales and a lot of modern children's stories as well. Number one, they tend to have a moral. Number two, especially in those traditional fairy tales, they're messed up to the nth degree. They're, 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 they're just wacky. Uh, take Hansel and Gretel, for instance, right? I love the story of Hansel and Gretel. Uh, how does it go? Boy and girl abandoned in the woods by their father, who's been convinced to do it by their mother or stepmother, depending on the version, right? Boy and girl find delicious gingerbread house. Delicious gingerbread house is occupied by evil witch. Evil witch wants to eat the children. Kids outsmart witch. Witch dies horrifically, by the way. Children escape, get ferried back home by a duck, depending on the version again, and fortunately the mother's died, so the father welcomes them back home. Moral of the story, don't judge a book by its cover, and don't leave your children in the woods! It's, it's, sorry, uh, it's not that hard. Uh, take the plethora of children's stories, though, with morals about humility and pride. There are a lot of them. Beauty and the Beast, for instance, right? Uh, or, uh, no, I can't remember the French name. I was going to sound clever. Now I forgot. Um, the proud beast is taught to love by the, uh, the, the uh, sorry, to love and to be humble just in time. Uh, fortunately, the curse uh, is cured, and also the, the, the cure cures the puncture wounds from him having been stabbed moments beforehand. Um, go back and watch the film if you don't believe me. Uh, beast and beauty live happily ever after until the French Revolution maybe a couple of decades later, when, as aristocrats, they obviously die. Uh, <laughs> moral of the story, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, no, no, moral of the story, humility is better than pride, right? Or take this more modern example. Uh, has anyone here heard of the story of Ugly Fish? Um, Ugly Fish is a children's book. Uh, it's a book about pride and the need for community. Uh, He's the fish who needed to be humbled enough to need others. Uh, ugly fish lives in a fish pond in his, in his owner's house. You never see the owners. 
And uh, every day he gets fed the briny flakes and he swims around his little sunken shipwreck and he flaps around in the sand on the bottom of the, the aquarium. And every now and then his owners introduce a new fish. Now it's worth saying, ugly fish is a large ugly fish. Uh, he's, he's a very unattractive, very big fish. And uh, they, they usually introduce a small, adorable fish to the fish pond. An ugly fish uh, meets these, these fish, they look around the fish pond and go, this is a very nice fish pond, and then he eats them. Uh, and and, and that's how the story goes for a few cycles, until he realises that he actually needs other people. He's been proud and considered himself above others, but he needs a community around him. And so he makes his mind up, he's going to welcome the next fish to the fish pond. And there's this touching moment of beauty when you see uh, need enter the life of an ugly fish. And the next day, lo and behold, they add a new fish, this enormous, terrifying fish <laughs> to the fish pond. An ugly fish very happily shows this fish around and goes, this is where we eat the briny flakes, isn't it wonderful? And the other fish goes, that is wonderful. And, and he says, this is the sunken shipwreck where, where you can swim around. And the other fish goes, that does look good for me to play on. And then he shows him the place where you flop around the sand and the other fish is very impressed. And then the other fish eats ugly fish. Uh, <laughs> end of story. Where do we find these people? Like the, sorry, sorry, I know, this isn't the point of the sermon. Don't take away from this that, that children's stories are messed up. But really, really, who writes that? Uh, and the answer is someone a little bit like me because I actually really enjoy reading it. Uh, but, but that aside, tonight we're coming to a passage in First Peter. We are getting to the point here. Centred on the humility of God's people. Peter writes here on how it is that the people of God are to go about being a humble community. Uh, and the importance of this teaching is underscored by the fact that this is the last section of teaching in Peter's letter. Uh, this, is, this is what he chooses to, to wrap up the body of the letter with. Next week we're going to come back, just like at the start we did the first two verses, we're going we're gonna, to gonna do a recap with the last two verses. Uh, but this is the last chunk. And if we were to sum up this section tonight, we could say that Peter's point is that followers of Jesus live in humility because they know his suffering and they hope for his glory. The passage breaks down into, into these two parts. Uh, in the first one, Peter calls the leaders of the Christian community to be humble, hopeful leaders. And then in the second, he calls us as a church to be a humble, hopeful community. Uh, and Peter opens our passage speaking to the elders of the church. Now, if you're not an elder in the church, this is not your opportunity to switch off and ignore. Uh, it is obviously within your interest to know things about how your church is led and what you are to call those people to do. Um, but also, they, he gives some principles here that apply to any form of leadership. Now, now just so there's no confusion, he, he's not speaking to the older people in the church here. He makes that really clear. He's speaking to those in the church who have the, the office of elder. Uh, although churches have differed on this over the years, I want to just say that I firmly believe, and, 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 and the leaders of our church firmly believe, that the New Testament presents a universal model of leadership. Uh, of the, the local church, and that is godly qualified eldership under the leading of Jesus. Um, if you want to dispute or discuss that afterwards, once again, uh, I, can, I can point you toward the establishing of an eldership in every single church of the entire New Testament. I, I am not overstating the case there. Um, the elders are the qualified leaders of the church. Uh, and Peter opens speaking to those elders and addresses them first as an equal. He writes, 
I exhort the elders, I'm, I'm in the ESV here, by the way, I did the NIV, it's nice to have, have a couple of versions to compare. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. And then he speaks as one who has authority, though, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And finally, one who is unified with them in hope, a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is a fellow leader in the trenches with them. He is authoritative to call them to action as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he is their brother, the brother of the whole church in hope. We live in a world, I'm not sure if you've noticed, obsessed with this idea of leadership. The, the odd book has been written about it. Uh, this, is, this is true within the church and without the church. Uh, we are a people who think and talk a lot about leadership. Actually, it's not just the odd book. Tens of thousands of books have been written on the subject of leadership and how to lead. Uh, proposed methods of leadership are everywhere for every type of leadership role. Uh, I went to a doctor's appointment this Monday just passed, uh, and, and I sat down in the waiting area with three other people, and the guy across from me, lo and behold, as I prepared a sermon on leadership, was reading a book about leadership. Like, it, it's everywhere, and that's not without reason. Leadership is significant. Um, have, have the right leaders in the right church or organisation or netball club or whatever, right? Uh, and, and, and amazing things can happen. It's not the only factor there, but it is a significant one. Likewise, have the wrong leaders, and it doesn't matter what resources they have. It doesn't matter uh, the, the wonderful people following them. Things are going to fall apart if you have the wrong people leading a thing. It's common for people to aspire to lead in whatever they do. And, and there are reasons for that. People want to be leaders for a number of reasons, for different reasons. Uh, financial gain often comes up there, for, for, especially for workplace leadership, right? A sense of obligation is sometimes a reason why someone moves into a leadership position. Uh, social status is a huge one. At the root, often the main reason why people go into leadership roles uh, is, 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 is that it gives them an immense sense of worth. Uh, they, they found what you would call their identity on it. It becomes a part of who they are, and it makes them feel like they are important. It is, it is who they are, you might say. And it's on that point that Peter will present to us a different form of leadership in this passage, which is to characterise the leaders of God's church and to characterise godly leaders everywhere, you know, whether in a school or a family, whether in a, uh, a hospital or in a football team. In verse 2 of our passage today, Peter calls the elders of the local church to shepherd the flock. And then in verse 4, he points the under-shepherds, uh, those who are shepherding the flock here, toward the true shepherd as their reason for leading as, he, as they do. He writes this, when the chief shepherd appears, this is verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, what Peter does there is he points uh, Christian leaders toward a better example of leadership and a better motivation for leadership than this world has to offer. Uh, while the world leads out of the gain and the sense of identity that a person might get out of it, Christian leaders are to lead uh, with the freedom of knowing that their identity is in Christ. 
And I, I jumped us forward to verse 4 because I wanted us to see uh, how that Christian-centered, uh, sorry, Christ-centered motivation forms the roots of the, the hopeful, humble leadership that Christian leaders are, to, uh, are being called to here. So now let, let's look at those characteristics that we skipped over just there in verses 2 and 3. Uh, and, and we'll see that they present the, the, the difference uh, that Jesus and final hope makes. So first, he gives us an attitude not under compulsion, but willingly. Now, we'll do a little comparison here. How does worldly leadership look? Um, how often is it that worldly leadership is under compulsion? Maybe another way of saying it is begrudging. You know, how, how, how used are you to the idea of a workplace leader who's a bit, a bit like, oh, I don't really want to be the leader here, but, but you know, someone's got to do the job. Sadly, we've seen that in, in the church, actually, and in, and in Christian families and workplaces, too. Uh, but that's not how it should be. Christian leaders know that Jesus will return and they will receive glory. So they can lead willingly, knowing they're walking on a path to that. What about the motivation? He writes, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. When a person doesn't seem to be leading in a begrudging, obligatory way, uh, often it's because they are getting something out of the people who are following them. Uh, why do people want to be leaders in the workplace? You know, rather than followers. Money, those dollar-dollar bills... And, 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 and you seem more important to the people around you. Sadly, we do see that fairly regularly in Christian churches as well, where people lead either for money or for pride, not always overtly, uh, not always obviously, sometimes painfully obviously. But Peter rebukes that. He calls Christian leaders to be different to the leaders of the world around them. They are to be eager for the leading that they do and not for the gain that they may get now. You see, their motivation is rooted in final hope once again. And so they aren't pursuing everything they could get out of leading right now. And that's, uh, that frees them to lead eagerly. As people who really desire to lovingly shepherd the people of God. And finally, what are, what's the method? He writes, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. If a person isn't driven as a leader by their final hope, if their uh, identity isn't firmly rooted in the, the person and the work of Jesus, uh, the, exam the example of Jesus that we see in, in his suffering, his, his servant, servant leadership, uh, his ultimate joy um, and the joy that he brings to them, if their leadership isn't rooted in that, then very quickly their identity becomes entangled in their leadership. And a leader whose identity is caught up in their leadership very quickly becomes domineering. And, and I think we can all think of obvious examples of this, but I encourage you to realise that this happens less obviously a lot of the time. Like I've been in churches that I would say were quite healthy in a lot of ways, where people were clinging to their leadership roles too closely because their identity was too entwined in it. And it creates some horrible things. I've seen it firsthand. The micromanaging domination is a real thing. It comes from a man who needs his leadership role because it is who he is. Christian leaders are never to be that guy. Jesus is my identity, not pastoring. 
if it would destroy a person to not be an elder or to not lead the ministry they're in or to not lead whatever they're leading, then they probably shouldn't be leading it. This, this isn't just the difference between someone who has a, a forceful character and someone who has a gentle character, understand. Um, you can domineer people and do it with a calm voice and a gentle hand most of the time. This is about whether a leader leads from the front or from the back. Peter is saying that Christian leaders don't just press down onto the people of God how they are to be. Now, now don't mistake this. They are to teach them. They are to lead the people of God in what they believe and what they do. But they're to do it from the front. They're to be examples to the people of God. They are so freed by the fact that their identity is in Christ and, and by the hope that is theirs in him that they are able to be an example to others. Whatever they call their people to be and to do, they seek to be an example of. They're never going to be perfect. We're not to look at them and think that we're meant to see Jesus, but we're meant to see something of Jesus and we're meant to see people who lead by example in following Jesus. What that means here is that you should be able to look to the leaders of this church. And right now that means Matt and I. So Matt, take this seriously. John, take this seriously. You should be able to look to us and expect the leaders to, to be living out as an example of the things that we call you to do. If we call you, for instance, to sink your teeth into scripture because, uh, because it's good for you, not like wheat bix is good for you, like, like air is good for you, right? No one begrudges air. Loads of people begrudge wheat bix. Uh, <laughs> you should be able to see us as people who do that who consume God's word like our lives depend on it, because they do. If we call you to build relationships with your neighbours, if we call you to show hospitality and to speak the gospel into the lives of the people of the world around you, you should be able to look to us as people who lead in that, not just in what we say, but in what we do. I think probably the primary area where you should be able to see this is in repentance. Uh, if We are under shepherds, not the shepherd. We're not Jesus, we're sinners, and everyone under Jesus is called to live a life of turning away from sin into him. And so if at any point, I hope you're not, but if at any point you uh, see Matt or I or a, another leader in this church and you think, wow, they, they seem like they have it all together and they're perfect, um, <laughs> come, and, come and slap me in the face maybe? I don't know. Um, maybe not like, literally slap me in the face. Maybe. It's better than, than, than people being led to think that, that the leaders of this church are perfect because that's just such a problem. We need to be leading in repentance as people who need God. Godly leaders understand that the great shepherd led by example. And we've seen that again and again throughout this letter, haven't we? Peter is continually holding out the example of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the trust of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, as an example of what we are meant to be. And so the under-shepherds, the elders of the church, and, and certainly then every other form of Christian leader, follows after their great leader and seeks to live out a good example for others to follow. What Peter's painted here is a picture of humbly hopeful leadership. Where worldly leadership is begrudging, greedy, domineering, Peter calls us to a Christian leadership which is humble because of certain hope. 
And in verse 5, Peter turns from the elders of the church and he speaks to the everyone else of the church. Now, the NIV had this as younger men, I think. Uh, To those who are younger would be a, a literal translation. But really what it seems by the contrast he's painting is that he's speaking not just to those who are young, but to those who are not the elders of the church. And he's telling them how they are to respond to those who have been called as elders of the church. And his command to the rest of the church here is unbelievably brief. In the original Greek, Peter writes only four words to those who follow, those that he refers to as the younger. Um, Those words in English come out as the first part of verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Submit to the elders. To the elders. There you go. There's your four words. It almost seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? Elders do this. Elders do that. Here's your attitude. Here's your motivation. Here's your method. Remember elders, the great example of Jesus and the great hope that is yours in, in him. And oh, by the way, everyone else, just follow them. It seems peculiar, but can, can you see how this fits into what Peter's teaching? He's just painted this picture of humble leadership in the church. Now he calls the rest of the church to submit to their elders. The leaders seek to lead by joyful example, serving in the image of the great servant leader, Jesus. Uh, And followers seek to submit to that leadership. This is a picture of a church where the leaders and those who follow them uh, seek to outdo each other in humbling themselves. It's not one-upmanship, but it almost is. One-downmanship? I don't know. Uh, But notice, as as Peter moves on from this command, in the latter end of verse 5, he once again roots our action in hope. Read this with me. Uh, He writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, so not just speaking to those who follow, uh, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Ultimately, we live in humility toward each other, uh, shepherds toward the sheep, sheep towards the shepherds, because ultimately that is the life which God looks on with grace. That is the life that ends with grace from God at the return of Jesus. And from now on, Peter is not talking to the leaders or the followers. He's talking to everyone. Uh, he's, He's speaking collectively to the Christian community again from here on. And as he is drawing the book to a close, he gives us this this one more significant paragraph of teaching on living as the humble, hopeful community of God. He writes, we'll read the first bit of it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Once again... Peter calls us as a whole community to live out hope-fueled humility. But now he's, he's focusing not just on humility towards each other, although it's still partly in view. He's talking about primarily humility before God. Lived out in the here and now. This call to humility before God is the climax of one of the great themes of this whole book. Uh, how many times has he called us to submit here, right? Do you remember? Citizens, submit to governments. Workers, submit to your employers. And, 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 and we saw in that week that that's actually a broader call. It's not focused on the workplace. It's focused on life. 
wives submit to husbands. And, and as we just saw, people of the church submit to the elders that God has given you. That kind of living takes an immense humility. In many of those cases, it's a call to submit to the point even of suffering in submission. And, and it's never a call to submit out of paralyzed fear of earthly authorities. No. Our humility comes from what we see right here at the end of 1 Peter. Our submission comes from this. In verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the appropriate time he may exalt you. He's pointing out what it is that leads us to live in humility, ultimately before God. That, that, that little group of words there, the mighty hand of God, is, is language stolen straight out of the Old Testament. Maybe stolen is the wrong word, but you get the gist. It, it always speaks in the Old Testament, about 11 times. Uh, about God saving his people out of Egypt. So what Peter is saying here, he's drawing that language forward to us. He's saying, humble yourselves, trusting not just in God's strong hands, in God's mighty power to save. And specifically here, his power to save you out of the suffering of this world and to exalt you. Live in humility before the one who has delivered you from your sin and will deliver you into eternal glory. And on this basis, Peter gives us this one specific way that we must practice our humility before God. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Those who are humbled by the saving might of God will bring their fears, their anxieties to him. The, the, the reasoning behind that is that ultimately, and I want to say this sensitively but clearly, ultimately clinging on to anxieties, clinging on to our fears, is a form of pride. It's the opposite of humility. Now, now, don't hear me wrong. Peter is not saying it is proud and sinful to have anxieties. Absolutely not. Obviously, he's not because he says bring your anxieties and saying that implies you have anxieties. Right? But often we can tend to think that we need to have it all together. Do you know what I mean? We act as Christians like we need to avoid showing others and even showing God that we have fears because they reveal our deficiencies as a person. Think of this in the context of the churches Peter's writing to. Uh, these are churches who were suffering in varying ways for their faith. Again and again, Peter has spoken uh, to the issue of suffering in this letter. And it would only stand to reason that the suffering of these Christians would have produced significant anxieties for them, wouldn't it? Uh, fears for them. Does God love us if we are suffering? How will I manage to get through in this hard life? If I'm a Christian, will I be able to feed my family? Real question that would have hit them. How can I go on under a government that opposes me, under an employer who opposes me, even under a spouse who opposes me, right? Real fears, understandable fears. I think we would all feel them in these contexts. 
But Peter points out that the only reason we hold on to them rather than bringing them to our loving Father is that we, we lack humility sometimes. We get proud. So Peter is giving us a releasing truth here. Your fears, your anxieties, they're not your burden anymore. Those words, you're bought with a price, come to mind, don't they? We are not our own. And God cares for you. Let that, let, let that sink in for just a moment. He didn't save you because he had to. He didn't save you because he should. He saved you and he keeps on saving you from the sin of this world and will save you out of this world because of one reason. He cares for you. He cares for me. He has a, a final and a glorious hope for you. And so we bring our fears to him. Always, always we are to be laying them at his feet. He is able to carry them. Really, this is a call to be ready to be real about our deficiencies, right? To be able to be honest with God about the fact that we're not enough. We're not up to facing this life on our own. Because really, that's what it is to be a Christian. I don't know if you've noticed, probably the, the, probably the first thing you need to know about yourself to be a Christian is that you need saving. It doesn't change after you get saved, Probably the first thing we need to know is, I need saving. And, 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 and we go on needing him to save us from being consumed by our fears and anxieties, as we see here. To save us from our own pride and lack of humility. Just quickly, how do we bring our anxieties to God? Well, first, there's this... It's a broken thing in our hearts when we feel like prayer is the throwaway answer. Um, I, I feel that temptation myself, and yet prayer is powerful when we remember who we are speaking to and how much he cares for us. We prayerfully hand over our worries to God, speaking them. How often do you speak your fears to God and humbly ask him to take them from us, to help us to deal with them? But second, and, and this is one of the reasons that we have been given a community of fellow believers. When you become a Christian, you, you became a part of a family. A community of people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and who, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, have a God-given ministry to speak the gospel lovingly into your life. We're a family, and, and yet we, we let our pride control us so often, don't we? We put up these walls, we put up barriers with our Christian brothers and sisters to make it look like we have it together. We, this is a funny thing. Christians, we make times to meet together, and then we afford, uh, avoid genuinely meeting together. It's, um, it, it makes no sense. We lay down borders and we say, well, I can't speak about that thing to them. Or I can't let them know how much I worry about that difficulty in my life. 
I can't, I can't talk to them about this thing. There's a stool there. Uh, I can't talk to them about this thing that I'm struggling with, this addiction, this sin, this suffering. Fill the gap, you know. We, we put up the walls. Because if I do, then they'll see me for who I am. They'll see that I'm not enough. And so we, we come together and, and we, we see these people who all look like they have it together. And this becomes just this vicious and awful cycle. Uh, we see people who have no worries, right? Now be 100% honest and raise your hand if you have no worries. Right, good. That doesn't mean that you can put the wall back up, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Or maybe, maybe we just, we, often we, we, we act like we've got really godly worries, you know. I'm just worried about the salvation of the lost. You know, like, but, but <laughs> we have genuine fears for our lives, for our kids, for our families, for the people in our street, for, for, for our house, for whatever. We, we, we miss out when we put up the walls on the chance to hear the truth of God's care brought to us in application by a people indwelt by his spirit. We miss the chance to come to God as a community in prayer over our anxieties. And we miss the chance to reveal to the world. You know, here's another reason we put up that wall. We put up the wall because we think the world around us has no fears. Because everyone puts up the wall, right? Newsflash. Everyone has fears. Everyone has anxieties and everyone has struggles. And when we are dealing with them as a community, when we are facing our fears and anxieties together and bringing them before the foot of the cross together, then that is a picture to a surrounding world. Here is a place where fears and anxieties are not denied like I know I'm denying them in my life. Here is a place where they're dealt with. Here is a saviour who saves. In the closing verses of this passage tonight, uh, Peter lays out one final, real, weighty reason why our hope must lead to this humility. Read this with me. He writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Uh, basically, looking back to what he's just said, he means don't lose sight of your salvation and your hope. Don't let them stop driving you to humility. Why? He writes, your advers adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do you feel the seriousness of what that says? Sometimes we think of living in humility as this kind of optional extra, the thing that uh, the extra holy Christians do. Right, There's a category we shouldn't have. Uh, we treat being real with God and with each other as an optional extra, and we see plenty of examples of this. Proud, stiff-necked Christians, ungracious Christians. But Peter says, this is more serious than you realise. We have a terrible, terrible enemy, the devil. That rebellious angel, he is prowling the earth like a man-eating lion. Vicious, untamed, and he's seeking to devour you. <laughs> Do you remember what we got called earlier in this verse? In this passage, rather? 
Verse 2 and 3, right? We're the flock. Do you know what flocks are made up of? Sheep. Do you understand the relationship between a lion and a sheep? Prey. Predator. Grr! Bah! End! Right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's that simple. It's important that we see the flow, though, of what Peter's urging us to here. He's not saying the devil is prowling around, causing you to suffer, trying to consume you by physically killing you. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying that the devil is prowling around, inflicting suffering on God's people, certainly, in the hope that they will proudly try to deal with it themselves. You see, suffering, difficulties, struggles in life, they on their own are not how the devil devours you. They are, in fact, a way that God refines you. We saw this in first chapters, like verse 7, I think, of this book. But they produce anxieties, don't they? When we face difficulties that seem too big for us, we become anxious about that, as Peter has said. And if we are too proud to cast those anxieties on God, unless we have a humility that is firmly rooted in our hope, that is ours in Jesus, rooted in the sufficiency of God and not of us, in his goodness to us and not my goodness on my own, uh, unless we have that, our pride will soon be the fall of us. Do you see how the metaphor applies here? If I'm hoarding up my anxieties, if we're too proud to speak them to each other, regularly bring them to God then we're like a person who's standing on the plain of Africa, right? And there's wild lions about. And instead of running into the house back here, I'm, I'm moisturising with barbecue sauce. And in fact, we, we, can, we can broaden this out, right? It's not just pride in connection with anxiety. All pride is dangerous to Christians. We boast in one thing, Jesus, not ourselves. When we become proud, when we begin to think that we are sufficient, that we have it under control, that we can do this on our own, when we uh, begin to live like we don't need God, we're painting a target on our back in an archery range. Like, like pride is that destructive. That, but on the other hand, when we are firm in our faith, like he says, when we trust God, that means, trust God enough to, de- to be real with him and humble with him, then we are taking shelter in the one and only place that is safe. His loving care. As serious as this situation is, as dangerous as the devil is, for those who have humble faith in God, the one weapon with which we fight the devil, for those who have humble faith in God, for those who trust in him, there is great certainty of the outcome. Because it is God who saves. And the devil, he's dangerous to us, but he's got nothing on God. We know this. Surely we know this. The devil was defeated by God, by God's mighty hand. When Jesus came and died on that cross and defeated the devil's one claim over you and me, our sin. And, what, and that, that's where Peter lands the major teaching section of this book. He lands it on the hope that we have and the defeat of the devil. In verses 10 and 11, Peter offers a glorious statement of the certain hope of God's people. Read this. 
and after you have suffered a little while. By the by, that little while is him encapsulating your whole life. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. After this life, the God who has saved us solely by the work of Jesus and because of his care for us will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish us. This is open to all who believe, all who trust. Peter seems to be making and reinforcing basically the same point with those four words, just trying to really hammer it in after a life of brokenness that will seem little compared to the glory to come. After a life of suffering, of trial, God will set his people up in his kingdom forever and nothing will shake them again. Joy is coming. We live with humility now. We live in suffering now. We live in a world where our enemy still prowls. We live in a world that isn't home now. But we have sure hope that home is coming. We will have a joy with Jesus forever. Let me, let, me, let me draw the application of this into one more thing, um, which I should have done earlier on in this, in this message. Um, coming up, I think at the start of next year, now I would have liked to have done this from day dot in this church, we just didn't really have the resources to do it. Um, we're going to start having these things called gospel communities. Uh, if you've ever attended a Christian home group, it's going to be something along those lines. Um, but by no means is that going to be just a chance to get together, put our walls up and do a nice little Bible study where we don't talk about our lives. We'll study the Bible. We'll study the Bible into our lives. Um, those are going to be this chance. And, and I encourage you, um, that's not... Gospel communities aren't going to be the, the be-all and end-all solution to Christian community. Um, you know, it's not the checkbox that you go to once a week and, whoop, done with Christian community for the week. But... but when we get to that, I encourage you, A, see that as an absolutely vital part of what it is to be in your local church. If you're a part of this church, you're a part of a gospel community. We're not going to excommunicate you for not making it one week. Maybe. No, that's, that's true. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but B, see that as an opportunity to, to, to hear the gospel from the people who God has intentionally placed around you to speak it into your life. See it as an opportunity to speak it into the lives of others and see it as an opportunity to be real with each other and ultimately with God. And with that, I'm going to pray for us in that. Okay. Jesus, thank you that you have brought us undefeatable hope. You will restore us out of this broken world you will confirm what you have called us to by the seeing of it. You will establish us there. And you will strengthen us. And nothing will shake us again. Because we are with you forevermore. Lord, help us to have eyes on that hope. Help us to have minds and hearts on the hope that's ours in you, in you and in nowhere else. Where else could we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Eternal life is knowing you. We can go nowhere else. No other can save. 
No one else can deal with our fears and anxieties now. We certainly can't. Make us a people who are real in that fact. Who can speak openly, who are accountable to you and to your people as those you have sent. A people whose fears and anxieties are dealt with. And we, Lord, we bring them before you now. We come before you a people who have fears, who have worries for today and tomorrow and for the life to come. In fact, I'm going I'm to give a time now for anyone to pray that quietly or loudly, what they fear and what they are anxious about. To God, quietly if you want, or loudly in the congregation of his people. And Lord, we trust that you care for us and you deal with those things. Lord, I, I struggle. Every Sunday I have anxieties for this church. I have fears about, about what you have us doing here. I have fears for my kids. Anxieties about their salvation. I have fears about speaking your word into other people's lives in the workplace and the ramifications that might have for me. I have fears that sin will snare me. I have fears that I will misrepresent you in how I am towards others. I become anxious and I become silent when I should speak and I become anxious and loud when I shouldn't. We confess, Lord, we have fears and we need you. We have anxieties and we can't deal with them. And we feel the, the washing tide of your care for us as the only way that they can be dealt with. Lord, deal with them in Jesus. Help us to be a people who are humble enough to come to you always. In Jesus' name. Amen.